When we are on the Lord's errand, President Thomas S. Monson promised, we are entitled to the Lord's help. We are not entitled, however, to a smooth road and an endless stream of successes. For proof of this, we need look no further than Paul the Apostle. His errand from the Savior was to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. In chapters 22 through 28 of Acts, we see Paul fulfilling this errand and facing great opposition, chains, imprisonment, physical abuse, a shipwreck, and even a snake attack. But we also see that Jesus stood by him and said, Be of good cheer, Paul. Paul's experiences are an inspiring reminder that the Lord's call to declare his gospel with the sound of rejoicing comes with this promise, lift up your hearts and be glad, for I am in your midst. This is Hope in Christ, a Come Follow Me podcast, and I'm your host, Ben Peterson, a member of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Acts chapters 22 through 28, a minister and a witness. Hi, thanks for joining me as we wrap up our final scripture highlight from the New Testament book of Acts. As we prepare to study the final chapters of Luke's book called Acts, Let's go back in time just a little bit to understand the context in which this book was written. For thousands of years before this book was written, and even before the Savior's birth into mortality, the gospel of Jesus Christ had been taught and dispensed through something called the Law of Moses, a preparatory law to prepare God's covenant people to enter into sacred covenants with Him through ordinances of the priesthood. But under the law of Moses, for thousands of years, the gospel of Jesus Christ was really only dispensed or taught to people who were descendants of Abraham through Isaac and Jacob. In other words, the gospel had only been taught for thousands of years to people who had been born into this world as members of the house or family of Israel. Even during the Savior's mortal ministry, he said, I am not sent, but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Even the Savior himself didn't spend very much time at all teaching people who were of Gentile nations. And during his ministry, he instructed his disciples to only teach members of the house of Israel. They were not yet to go unto the city of the Samaritans or any of the way of the Gentiles. But after the Savior's resurrection, the Lord told His twelve disciples to go into all the world and teach all nations, but they weren't to do it all at the same time. The expansion of the church had to be gradual, it had to be done in order, and that would not be easy for the early members of the Savior's church. There were so many cultural and traditional hurdles they had to leap over. For example, Jewish members of the Savior's Church had a difficult time realizing that the Law of Moses, with all of its rituals, could actually be done away with by the gospel of Jesus Christ, or the fullness of His gospel. They didn't believe that circumcision, animal sacrifices, and some of their dietary laws would no longer be important. 
In fact, some of the Jewish members of the church criticized the chief apostle Peter for baptizing Cornelius and for even going into his home. And it was a bit understandable why they would be so frustrated with the idea of the Gentiles receiving the gospel. After all, for thousands of years, in fact, perhaps even from the beginning of the earth, the gospel was only preached to a certain select group of people, that being the house of Israel or those who were part of a specific family line. So the idea of the gospel going to everyone all over the world, the idea of teaching as missionaries do today to anyone and accepting everyone into the gospel in the church of Jesus Christ was very new to the people of Jesus' time. And many of the Jewish followers of Christ had a very hard time accepting the idea of Gentiles converting to the gospel. And they definitely had a hard time with the idea of doing away with the law of Moses and thinking that it could be fulfilled in Christ, even though they believed that Jesus Christ was the Messiah. And this is where the Apostle Paul comes in. Paul felt the same way as many of those Jewish followers of Christ, though he didn't follow Christ at the time. He and many others felt that Jesus Christ was a threat to Judaism. He was a threat to the gospel. He was a threat to the law of Moses. And that meant that he was a threat to everything that they believed in. And so with support and authority given to him from the leaders of the Jewish people of his time, Paul went out and heavily persecuted members of Christ's church. But he did so thinking that he was actually serving God. And so it makes sense that when Jesus Christ came to him and told him that he had been fighting against God and that his God was Jesus Christ, it made sense that Paul would convert to the gospel of Jesus Christ and become a disciple of Christ. Over the last couple of weeks, we've studied about Paul's missions. Several years after he converted, he did serve several missions for the church and he took the gospel into other areas of the known world at the time, including into what we would call continental Europe today. The places where Paul taught the gospel were all areas within the Roman Empire, and he was just the man to take the gospel to the Romans. This is because Paul, though he was Jewish, was also a Roman citizen which gave him certain rights in the empire and made it a lot easier for him to take the gospel to people throughout Asia, Greece, and surrounding areas. But as the church became more international, the cultural tensions between Jews and Gentiles continued to increase. For example, if a man were to decide to become a Jew, he had to be circumcised. He had to offer sacrifices and be baptized. But because the law of Moses was no longer the standing law of Jesus Christ's church, some new converts wondered if they did need to be circumcised. And you might recall from earlier episodes and chapters in Acts that that's where the Jerusalem council came into play. That was where Paul and other church leaders went back to Jerusalem to counsel with the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles and find out whether or not church members still needed to be circumcised if they were Gentile converts. Then in past chapters in the book of Acts, we saw Paul go on a second and even a third mission to teach people in other countries, to take the gospel not only to members of the house of Israel that were scattered, but also to Gentiles. But not all of the Jewish converts felt the same about inviting Gentiles into the church. 
Apparently, rumors started to fly that Paul was teaching against the law of Moses, which he really wasn't. He was just teaching that the law of Moses was not the source of their salvation and that it had been fulfilled in Christ. Now, at the end of our last scripture highlight in Acts chapter 21, we read that Paul felt inspired to go back to Jerusalem, but others that were with him said that they felt inspired by the Spirit that he shouldn't go back to Jerusalem and that if he did return to Jerusalem, his life would be in danger. So, when Paul returned to Jerusalem, there was an upheaval by some of the Jewish members of the church. Now, just to be clear, these are people who believed that Jesus Christ was the Messiah. They are members of his church, but they were also Jewish by descent and by tradition. So, Jesus' half-brother James at this point was one of the twelve apostles, and he had gone to Paul when Paul returned to Jerusalem and said, look, Paul, we've got a problem. There are a lot of people here, members of the church, who feel really strongly about the law of Moses, and they don't like the idea that you have been teaching that the law of Moses isn't important anymore. In fact, some of them think that you've been against the law of Moses. So, I have an idea. In order to win them over and satisfy their conscience, why don't you go into the temple with a few others and enter a Nazarite vow? This was a promise that basically dedicated your life especially to God for a period of time. So go into the temple, shave your head, make the proper sacrifices to enter into this vow, and prove to the people that you are a convert of the law of Moses. You truly believe in this law and that you're not against it. So, Paul does this. He goes into the temple, and over a period of days, he enters into this Nazarite vow. But as he's there in the temple, some of the Jews from Asia, where Paul had been teaching, who happened to be in Jerusalem at the same time, recognized Paul and accused him falsely of having taken some Greeks into the inner courts of the temple, where Gentiles were not allowed. Now, Paul hadn't done that, but they didn't care, and they accused him anyway. Now, the penalty for taking Gentiles into the inner courts of the temple was death. And so, a riot broke out there on the Temple Mount, and a lot of the Jews grabbed Paul and almost killed him. Now, just next to the Temple Mount is the Antonia Fortress. This is a Roman fortress where guards were set up in case there was a riot among the Jews on the Temple Mount. And a group of guards there in the fortress noticed this riot and came to Paul's rescue, barely saving him from being killed. They carry him up the stairs leading to the fortress, but there he asked them if he could address the group. And it's kind of funny because one of the guards looked at him and thought, wait a second, aren't you that Egyptian guy that led 4,000 men into the wilderness that were all murdered? And Paul probably looked at him and thought, I have no idea what you're talking about. And he said, I'm a man that's a Jew from Tarsus, a Gentile city. Please let me speak to this people. Now, there's the context that sets up the chapters we're studying this week. Now we're in Acts chapter 22. So there's Paul standing on the steps of the Antonia Fortress looking across the Temple Mount and he addresses the people in the Aramaic language or the Hebrew tongue. And he says, Men, brethren, fathers, hear ye my defense which I make now unto you. And he tells them who he is. He told them that he was a Jew from the city of Tarsus and that he grew up being tutored by Gamaliel, 
which was a really well-known Jewish teacher in the Pharisaic way. This would have been a name that everyone would have recognized and respected among the Pharisees. And he told them, I professionally persecuted the people of what he called the way or Christ's disciples. I even had them killed. I bound them. I delivered them into prisons. And I did it with authority from the Sanhedrin. Essentially saying, look, you guys are amateurs. You're just breaking out in a riot or a mob against me. But I did this for a living. I know what you're trying to do. So listen up. And then he shares with them his own conversion story, helping them hopefully see that what they were doing was also kicking against the pricks. They were going the wrong way, that Jesus Christ was the Messiah and that he was the God that they had been worshiping and that they needed to change their ways and start following him. Well, as he's teaching this, everyone is totally silent. Until we get close to the end of chapter 22, in verses 18 through 21, Paul shared with them the words of the Lord to him, saying, Make haste, get thee quickly out of Jerusalem, for they will not receive thy testimony concerning me. Depart, for I will send thee far hence unto the Gentiles. When the people there heard that word, the Gentiles, they started rioting again and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for it is not fit that he should live. So as was normal for their day, the chief captain decided, Well, let's find out if Paul's telling the truth. And they would do this by scourging them. They felt that if you scourged someone and they stuck to their story, they must be telling the truth. But as they were tying him up, Paul turned to the soldier and said, Is it legal for you to scourge a man that is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? When that soldier heard Paul's words, acknowledging that Paul was a Roman, the chief captain got nervous and realized they had no right to bind him or to scourge him. So the next day, Paul has an opportunity to appear before the people that were accusing him, including the high priest named Ananias. There at that hearing, Before that council, Paul said, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. But when he heard that, the chief priest Ananias couldn't take it anymore, and he slapped Paul across the face. To which Paul responded, saying, God shall smite you, thou whited wall. For sittest thou to judge me after the law, and commandest me to be smitten contrary to the law? You're such a hypocrite. And then Paul wisely kind of played the audience, at this point realizing that some of them were Pharisees and some were Sadducees, and knowing that the Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection of the dead, he said, Men and brethren, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee, and I'm only here being accused because I have hope in the resurrection of the dead. And when Paul said this, a fight broke out between the Pharisees and the Sadducees because the Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection. But the fight wasn't looking good for Paul. In fact, the chief captain sent his soldiers down to save Paul from being pulled into pieces. But even in the midst of all of this ruckus and riot and turmoil for Paul, that night the Lord stood by Paul and said to him, Be of good cheer, Paul, 
For as thou hast testified of me in Jerusalem, so must thou bear witness also at Rome. This is a significant revelation to Paul. At this point, he realizes that God is going to do his very best to get Paul to Rome. But even in that revelation, there's a great lesson for you and I. When Heavenly Father gives us revelation, especially when we're in times of trial or we don't know what to do, He often will give us just enough light, just enough vision, just enough information to bring some sense of hope and direction, but not all of the details. Have you ever noticed that in your life? But when this happens, when the Lord gives us just a little bit to go off of, just enough to get us going, it allows us to exercise our agency. So with confidence that Paul is now going to get to Rome eventually, he's not very bothered by the fact that his nephew comes to him and lets him know that there is a group of about 40 men who have sworn an oath that they will not eat anything until Paul is dead. So Paul has his nephew go and tell the chief captain about this conspiracy. And the chief captain decides to go ahead and send Paul up to the governor, up into Caesarea, a city located along the Mediterranean coast north of Jerusalem. This is the same city that Pilate lived in when Jesus was crucified. So now in chapter 24, Paul appears before the governor named Felix. But as Paul is presented to Felix, he's called a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. At the time, those who were not followers of Jesus Christ had come up with all sorts of names that they would call disciples of Christ. One of them was calling them of the sect of the Nazarenes. Nazarenes because Jesus was known as the Nazarene because he was from Nazareth. Even the title Christian is only mentioned in the Bible by people who are not disciples of Christ. This seemed to be a nickname or a title given to Christ's disciples by people who didn't necessarily like Jesus or his followers. This is somewhat comparable to what we've seen in the Latter-day Church or the Restored Church of Jesus Christ. In 2018, President Russell M. Nelson said, For much of the world, the Lord's Church is presently disguised as the Mormon Church. But we as members of the Lord's Church know who stands at its head, Jesus Christ himself. Unfortunately, many who hear the term Mormon may think that we worship Mormon. Not so. We honor and respect that great ancient American prophet. But we are not Mormon's disciples. We are the Lord's disciples. In the early days of the restored church, terms such as Mormon church and Mormons were often used as epithets as cruel terms, abusive terms, designated to obliterate God's hand in restoring the church of Jesus Christ in these latter days. So trying to dismiss the legitimacy of Paul, these guards present Paul as not a prophet of God or an apostle of Jesus Christ, but simply as the ringleader of some Nazarene sect. Paul is then allowed to share his story with the Roman governor Felix. Felix doesn't find much fault in Paul, just like Pontius Pilate didn't find much fault in Jesus Christ. And also like Pontius Pilate to Jesus Christ, Felix didn't let Paul go. Instead, for two years, Paul was under house arrest, where Felix refused to let him go, but secretly hoped that Paul would offer him a bribe for his freedom. 
After two years, Felix was replaced by a new governor. This governor was named Porcius Festus. Festus was anxious to get rid of this case and put it to an end. But Paul felt that this new governor would just give in to what the Jews wanted. But deep down, Paul knows that God wants him to get to Rome, and he believes that God is going to get him there. But it's already been two years since he had that revelation. Have any of you in your life ever felt like God was telling you your life ought to go in a specific direction, but it just didn't seem to be happening for you? Things just weren't working out in order to make it possible or to bring that thing to pass? There's a great balance that we have to strike in situations like that between times when it's appropriate to just stand still and let God guide us through life, knowing that as we trust Him, He will get us to where we need to be, and other situations where sometimes we need to act and use our agency in order to get things going, where God will then take us by the hand and lead us further down that path. It's important that we listen very closely to the Holy Ghost, that we receive the Holy Ghost into our life, that we are close to His promptings, and that we listen for them often. In Paul's case, it's now been two years, and he doesn't see any hope of ever getting to Rome. So in this case, perhaps he felt like he needed to get the ball rolling a little bit. So with special rights as a Roman citizen, Paul said to Festus, I stand at Caesar's judgment seat, where I ought to be judged. To the Jews, I have done no wrong, as thou very well knowest. For if I be an offender, or have committed anything worthy of death, I refuse not to die. But if there be none of these things whereof these men accuse me, no man may deliver me unto them. I appeal unto Caesar. So now here Paul is appealing to the Roman emperor himself. Then when Festus heard this, he said, Hast thou appealed unto Caesar? Unto Caesar shalt thou go. Sometime after this, King Agrippa, this is Herod Agrippa, he would have been a descendant of Herod the Great who tried to have Christ killed just after his birth. King Agrippa comes to town and Festus asks Agrippa, hey, I've got this guy named Paul and he's appealed to Caesar But in order to send him to the emperor, I feel like I ought to have a really legitimate reason for sending him to Rome. What do you think about listening to Paul's story with me and maybe help me figure out what to say to the emperor when I send him to Rome? Now that takes us into Acts chapter 26. This is a chapter you'll want to take some time studying. Paul bore a powerful testimony before Festus and King Agrippa. He told them about his conversion story, and there when he heard the voice of the Savior saying that I am Jesus whom thou persecutest, the Savior then said to him, Rise, stand upon thy feet, for I have appeared unto thee for this purpose, to make thee a minister and a witness, both of these things which thou hast seen, and of those things in the which I will appear unto thee delivering thee from the people and from the Gentiles unto whom I now send thee, to open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan unto God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among them which are sanctified by faith that is in me. 
Now, that's interesting because Paul is introducing to these individuals something that wasn't known in Jewish culture beforehand. Not only is God sending Paul to bring these people out of the darkness and into the light, but through Paul's teachings of the gospel of Christ, God is also offering the Gentiles forgiveness of sins. And even more, he's offering them the same inheritance that he offers the sanctified ones. In other words, those who are truly of the house of Israel and who are faithful. When they heard this, notice the reactions that both Festus and King Agrippa offered in response to Paul's teachings. Festus spoke in a loud voice, said that Paul was beside himself, and accused Paul of being crazy. But you've got to love Paul's boldness. He responded saying, I'm not crazy, most noble Festus, but I speak forth the words of truth and soberness. And then with confidence that surely came to him through the Holy Ghost, he boldly turned to the king and said, For the king knoweth of these things. For I am persuaded that none of these things are hidden from him. For this thing was not done in a corner. King Agrippa, believest thou the prophets? And then almost as if he knew Agrippa's thoughts, perhaps Agrippa seemed to be getting a little flustered, Paul said, I know that thou believest. Then Agrippa said to Paul, Almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. Now there is question about how that verse, verse 28 in chapter 26, is translated. In the King James Version it says, Almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. But in other translations, the Greek seems to say something more like, In such a small amount of time you think you're going to convince me to be a Christian? From both ways that this verse is translated. First, let's focus on the word Christian. In 1990, President Russell M. Nelson, then Elder Nelson, said, The word Christian appears in only three verses of the King James Version of the Bible. One verse describes the historical fact that disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. Another quotes a sarcastic non-believer, King Agrippa. And the third indicates that one known as a Christian must be prepared to suffer. That's in 1 Peter. President Nelson continued, in contrast, the term saint or saints appears in 36 verses of the Old Testament and in 62 verses of the New Testament. Now, we won't dive any deeper into President Nelson's talk here, but I definitely recommend you go and study that talk, especially in conjunction with the invitation we extended in an earlier podcast episode about what God wants his covenant people to be called, both anciently and in the latter days. Going back to Acts 26, 28, where King Agrippa said, Almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian, let's focus on that word, almost for a minute. I often hear that word when I ask one of my children if they cleaned their room. Well, it's almost clean, they'll say. Can you imagine if we only give the Lord almost all of our faithfulness? If we're almost obedient to his commandments, imagine meeting him at his second coming and hearing the devastating words, you almost earned the celestial kingdom. You almost sought first the kingdom of God. For the most part, well done, thou usually good and faithful servant, you almost made it. 
President James E. Faust once said, Almost, what a heartbreaking sound is the word almost. Almost some of our good members keep the word of wisdom, or just about go to priesthood meeting and sacrament meeting, or almost hold family home evening. Some of us almost, but not quite, pay our tithing. When it comes to God's commandments, perhaps you can have a conversation with your friends or your family or your class about what it means to almost keep God's commandments compared to what it means to faithfully keeping His commandments, and what it means to almost receive the blessings compared to being a true recipient of God's most favorable blessings. So after hearing Agrippa say, Almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian, Paul turned and said, I wish that not only you, but also everyone that hears me this day were both almost and altogether such as I am, well, except for being chained up. See, King Agrippa already was a Jew, but he wasn't willing to fully commit to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Here's another place where you can pause and reflect or have a conversation with your class or your family. What does it mean to almost be converted versus what does it mean to be truly converted to Christ? What is it that might be keeping you from becoming more converted to Jesus Christ? Is there a specific commandment you're not yet fully willing to commit to? If there is, chances are the reason why might have something to do with your understanding of what Jesus Christ has actually done for you. The more we begin to understand him, the more our hearts turn to him, the more we long to repent. And the more we repent, the more power we receive from him to change. And the word change, well, it means to be converted. So if you feel like you're struggling to fully commit, or if you're wondering if you're really converted to Christ, or want to increase your conversion to him, a good place to start might be studying the life of Jesus Christ and trying to understand through prayer and temple worship what it is that Jesus Christ has actually done for you. Now, as we go back to the book of Acts, in the end, neither Agrippa or Festus found that Paul was guilty of any wrongdoing. So, because Paul had appealed to Caesar, they sent him off to Rome. Imagine an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ appearing in what was essentially the center of the world to the leader of the Roman Empire himself. If the gospel could be preached to the emperor, then the gospel could potentially go throughout the entire world. You see, long before Jesus Christ was born, as we talked about at the beginning of this year in one of our highlights, the Lord had prepared the world for the gospel of Jesus Christ to go throughout the entire known world at the time. To learn more, definitely go back and check out that episode before we began the New Testament study this year. And now through Paul, the Lord is now taking advantage of that preparation and growing the kingdom of God on the earth, spreading the news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, which would eventually make way for the restoration of the gospel of Jesus Christ in these, the latter days. You see, all of God's plan from the history of the earth all the way back to Adam, even until today and even into the future, is all part of God's great plan to bring about the salvation of all of his children. He perfectly knows what to do to prepare for the next move. 
Now, as we wrap up the last two chapters of the book of Acts, you'll notice that the story doesn't seem to have an ending. Luke leaves it kind of open-ended at the end of Acts chapter 28. We know that Paul gets to Rome, but we don't necessarily know if he appears before Caesar. We don't have an account of it. But this isn't the end of our study of Paul. Paul wrote most of the rest of the New Testament. Many of the epistles that we'll be studying the rest of this year were all authored by Paul. They were letters that he was writing throughout his missionary journeys and his imprisonment, including during his time imprisoned in Rome, written to members of the church throughout the area. But now back to the last two chapters of Acts. In Acts 27, on their way to Rome, Paul finds himself in a ship with 275 other people. As they went from island to island, Paul boldly stood up and said to the soldiers, Sirs, I perceive that this voyage will be with hurt and much damage, not only of the lading and ship, but also of our lives. But in verse 11 of chapter 27, we read that for certain reasons, the centurion soldier decided not to believe this apostle. If you look in chapter 27, verses 11 through 13, you find three main reasons why the man decided not to listen to this prophet. First, he said he believed the master and owner of the ship more than those things which were spoken by Paul. So he believes the owner of the boat more than he believes this passenger on the boat who happens to be a prophet. In verse 12, it says, because the haven or the place where they were was not commodious or comfortable to winter in, the majority advised to depart thence. So first you have a supposed expert who he believes more than he believes the prophet. Then you have the majority vote that he also believes more than he believes the prophet. And then in verse 13, it seems like the evidence showed that their choice was the right choice. When the south wind blew softly, they supposed that they had obtained their purpose. However, if you continue into verse 14, it starts out, But not long after, there arose against it a tempestuous wind called Euroclidon, which is an east wind. The wind came on so strong, they completely lost all control of their ship. There's an amazing lesson in this part of chapter 27. How often do we rely more on what the experts have to say, or rely on the majority vote, or simply on what logically seems to be working out right? and we ignore the words of a prophet. There really are so many areas of our life where we could find many opportunities to justify ignoring the words of a prophet, but when we do it, we do it at our own peril. Think about some of the warnings and promises our prophet has given even recently. He's urged us to be a peacemaker, giving specific cautions and promised blessings if we disobey or follow the prophet's counsel. He has done the same with gospel teaching and learning in our homes, with Sabbath day worship, and one of the greatest examples can be found in the family, a proclamation to the world, where prophets have warned and forewarned that if we allow the family unit to disintegrate, if we do not protect families and marriage as God has designed it, if we allow contention and divorce dishonesty, immorality, pornography, and so many other ills that attack marriage and family, then we will see in our day the calamities that ancient and modern prophets have foretold. We don't want to find ourselves in that boat. 
Luckily, for those who were in the boat with Paul, he said to them, Sirs, ye should have hearkened unto me, and not have loosed from Crete, and to have gained this harm and loss. But then, as they started to listen to him, at least so it seems, he said, I exhort you to be of good cheer, for there shall be no loss of any man's life among you, but of the ship. In other words, you're all going to be safe, but our boat will have seen better days. And so it was. They started to hearken to the prophet of God, and as they did so, they were saved. Not without opposition and not without grave consequences for their foolish choice to ignore the prophet, but they were saved. There are so many other great lessons that you can pull from these chapters, and I encourage you to do so as you read it. Let's conclude reiterating that last lesson. If we will follow God's prophet, we will never be led astray. He will protect us, though we might face opposition and probably will along the way. We will be safe because we will have followed the prophet of God and heeded his warnings. I love the final verse of the primary song, Follow the Prophet. It states, Now we have a world where people are confused. If you don't believe it, go and watch the news. But we can get direction all along our way. If we heed the prophets, follow what they say. What are the prophets saying today that you and I need to listen a little more closely to? What warnings are they giving? What dangerous paths might we be walking without even realizing it because we're simply following the majority vote or listening to the experts? Or because the soft wind seems to be blowing in the right direction and nothing seems to be going wrong? As we close this scripture highlight, I reiterate once again the invitation to all of us to keep our eyes riveted on the prophet of God and to follow him as closely and as exactly as we can. This is a message of hope in Christ. Christ.